American businessman Andy Dunn once said, The history of innovation is the story of ideas that seem dumb at the time. This is Save vs. Rent. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about games. Games I picked up from Gen Con. Right. Jeremy attended Gen Con this year. I uh, actually ended up staying home and uh, having a brief visit to the hospital for a head injury. But apart from that, you know, it was a fairly uh, typical weekend. Having said that, Jeremy went to Gen Con and got several new games. I am a board game fanatic. Every year, I try and get more and more games that interest me, and I try to get as many people as I can to play them. So, I am have a small list of some of my favorites from this Gen Con that I picked up, and I just want to give you our first impressions of these games. These aren't going to be full, in-depth reviews of these. These are just going to be what we think of these games after having played them once. And these are all kind of newer games. Some of them have been around for a little while, but for the most part, they're newer games picked up at Gen Con. Our shows tend to be evergreen. We're talking about topics that are going to be pretty much the same forever. Things like gaming theory and how to DM and stuff like that that's been developed through years of uh, study and research and all that. Whereas this episode is going to be just a little more about, you know, some stuff we're doing right now. So the first game I want to talk about is actually one that we haven't even played yet. Not for lack of want, but more due to lack of people. I'm talking about what I think is the most underrated release from Gen Con 2018, Ultimate Werewolf Legacy. Now, we've talked about Ultimate Werewolf and uh, games like Ultimate Werewolf in our episode about social deduction games and werewolf is a pretty standard social deduction game we've also talked about legacy games and the ideas behind them now between the two social deduction and legacy games ultimate werewolf legacy is uh, a really interesting concept to me because by definition in social deduction games your role in the game changes and your expectations of how to play change so adding to that an element of carrying over the successes and failures of previous games kind of makes it interesting in a way that I think isn't readily apparent, but uh, we kind of flip through the material that they've got that's part of the introduction to the game. The biggest differences that we have between Ultimate Werewolf Legacy and Normal Ultimate Werewolf are a few. The first thing that I noticed was it's in a big box. Yeah, much bigger box than uh, Ultimate Werewolf. Ultimate Werewolf is kind of one of the card-sized boxes, and Ultimate Werewolf Legacy comes in a full board game-sized box, which contains considerably more than a typical Ultimate Werewolf game. Now, normally in Ultimate Werewolf games, they just have a bunch of roles. And while there are a bunch of roles in this box, there's also a large diary that changes the game as it goes along. There are family tokens, which give lasting powers to certain families throughout the game. And there are these large, very substantial tokens. 
Yeah, the, they come off of a big cardboard punch card like you would typically see with most uh, board games that have tokens that punch out. These ones are actually really robust. I'm, I'm pleased with the uh, quality of the components. It's really like you're not going to forget about these and they're going to make a pretty substantial impression on you when you receive one of them. The most notable is the Ivory Tower token. Now, if you were the first person eliminated in the last session of the game, you receive this Ivory Tower token, and it means that you cannot be the first person eliminated in this game. Which is great, because uh, that's often an issue in werewolf games, where everybody kind of gangs up on the player that they know is good at bluffing, or the one that they think is always the most suspicious, things like that. And this can prevent that sort of ganging up and give you a better chance of continuing in the game if you are already had sort of the disappointing experience of being eliminated first. So the game is divided into five chapters. Each chapter is expected to be played in one gaming night. Each chapter contains three sessions. Each session is of course just a game of Ultimate Werewolf. So the campaign is about 15 games long, which is pretty reasonable because when we thought about it, we usually play Werewolf about three times in the same night, and we don't typically play it for more than uh, five or six uh, weeks in a row. So this actually works out pretty well, and it might be a pretty standard thing for our group. Uh, It's just that the number of players required for the game is... uh, It's a minimum of nine players. Which is pretty extreme, considering I think regular Werewolf has a minimum of six or five. It it has a minimum of six players in the base game. While that's fine, that's, that suits our group for our smaller gatherings, if we were to throw a party and try and break this out as a party game, it only goes up to 15, which a number of our parties and get-togethers have 20 people or so. So, yeah, it, it, so it kind of occupies sort of a sweet spot of having difficulty getting that many people together for our group. Again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Those are good numbers, and I think that those are actually some of the better numbers to play social deduction games with. It's just getting that exact number together, that exact range together for our group is difficult because we often have gatherings that are either really big or fairly intimate, never really hitting that nine. All that said, we're really interested in trying to get this game to the table. Most social deduction games are really our wheelhouse. So this is really exciting and interesting. We haven't looked through any of the spoilerific things. We haven't opened the one box in the box. But once we do, if we really like it, we'll tell you. If we really don't like it, we will definitely tell you. Oh yeah, we'll we'll have a lot to say if we don't like it, especially with the uh, high hopes that we're developing for it. But we are really looking forward to that one. The next game that we had was Pantone. Oh yeah. So this is a game that I can kind of describe as Color Swatch Pictionary or Little Color Cube Charades. In it, you play down these little color swatches like you'd find in the paint department of any hardware store. And you are trying to create a representation of a character on a card. Now, that seems pretty simple, but it actually works. The game itself has very strong bones. It kind of makes me think of, there was this ongoing internet meme of creating minimalist versions of characters where it would just be like a one pixel column uh, with the different colors of the characters, like kind of a core sample of the cartoon character or the iconic rock star or whatever. And you would like look at the colors going down. I think that was originally a 
something awful Photoshop Friday, but it's kind of uh, replaying that in game form, though, trying to create these color swatches and create a, a column of color swatches that remind you of, for instance, Barney the Dinosaur or a Teletubby or something like that. The, this game has tons of different ones. There's uh, all the different Simpsons characters. There's Crash Bandicoot. There are people like Eric Cartman and other people like Abraham Lincoln. Pop culture icons, historical characters, all kinds of things. And it actually works pretty well. And I have such high hopes for this game when I bought it. I was like, yes, this is going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. And it's all right. It's it's okay. It's not bad, but it's kind of forgettable, which... (sighs) I mean, it's a colorful game, it's a fun little game to play around a table, but all in all, I don't think that this is going to be a game that I'm going to break out every time that people come over. I wish I had more to say about this game. It's good, it's not great. A a quick search, I was able to actually find what I was talking about, the uh, abstract pixel art, and it was, uh, looks like it was a comedy goldmine from Something Awful, which is just an article that they do for funsies, and yeah, it's just abstract abstract columns of pixels used to represent characters. It's really cool, and it looks like a game of Pantone, kind of. Uh, here, let me let me really quick show you that. We'll, we'll probably put a link in the blog to this. Oh, yeah, you, you have the different stacks of colors. I, I could definitely tell one of those was Peter Griffin. Uh-huh, yep, yep. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So I'll, I'll link to that in the blog. Pantone kind of just feels like a gamified version of that, and I think that's actually pretty cool. Like you said, it doesn't really seem to have a lot of replayability to it. I mean, it's neat, but it's just, it's a concept that gets played out really quickly. The next game that I want to talk about is actually two games. They're two small, casual games that I picked up on my way to pick up another game. These two small games are called The Game and The Mind. They are both sort of time-waster puzzle games where you have a deck of cards that goes from, like, a very low number to a very high number. I think one of them is uh, 2 to 99, and the other is a deck from 1 to 100, right? That is correct. And the 2 to 99 one is The Game, and the 1 to 100 is the mind, right? Exactly. Now, the game is more of a game than the mind. The mind is really played more in the mind than the game. (laughs) (laughs) That that really works. The game, you have four piles. Uh, Two piles that start at 1 and two piles that start at 100. The two piles that start at 1, the rule is just keep playing cards to make the pile higher. You go from 1 to 5 to 15 to 22 and up. The two piles of 100, the only rule on those is to play lower cards. So you go from 100 to 92 to 87 to 86 to 85 to 73. And your goal is to play out every single card in this uh, 98 card deck with everybody starting with six cards and playing two per turn. Now the thing that makes this game challenging is that sometimes you can alter the state of the piles by playing the exact card the card that is exactly 10 either higher or lower in the opposite direction. So if you're playing on the pile that has to keep getting smaller, you can play a larger card if it's exactly 10 higher. Likewise, on the one that goes from 1 all the way up, 
up, you can play a lower card if it's exactly 10 lower. Now this adds a little bit of strategy as the players go, hey, don't don't play on this pile here. I can help it out. Or, oh, if you if you don't play anything here, I can I can get us going a lot better. You're not allowed to discuss the exact nature of the cards in your hand. You're not allowed to say, hey, I have 13 and 22. Right, because then it's basically a solved game because it's just about trying to find the most efficient pattern. But this is about teamwork, so you're allowed to kind of talk about what strategic elements you want, but you can't actually say what your hand is. As opposed to the mind, where you're not allowed to say anything, and the only goal is to count from 1 to 100 in order with whatever cards you have in your hand. The mind feels like it was a CIA-made game back in the middle of the Cold War. It feels like Psy training the game. You're dealt out these cards, and without talking, you just play them in order from lowest to highest. How how hard can that be? That barely sounds like a game. And yet, it's actually really interesting and captivating. It, it is. It's a lot of fun to play. One thing I really enjoy about it is that there are moments of serendipity to it. There was one time, for instance, that me, Jeremy, and my brother were playing, and unbeknownst to us, we had the numbers 36, 37, and 38 in our hands, and we were able to play them out perfectly in order, much to our joy and great satisfaction. The game is kind of about keeping an internal clock going and trying to synchronize it with everyone else's without ever talking or signaling or clapping or making any sort of gestures. But there's also like sort of an element of feeling it out. Like maybe we went past the number and like I need to give them a chance to figure out that I'm running faster than them. Stuff like that. So you kind of, you know, learn to synchronize. And then also there's like a shuriken element that lets you throw away the uh, lowest value card in your hand. And that can be a game changer as well. So as I said, the game is more of a game than the mind, but I actually like the mind a bit more than the game. You see, in the game, if you play a bad card or if you play and it, it's a bad play for you, like, hey guys, this pile's going to jump by 20, sorry, and you play your card out, people still kind of have hard feelings about it. They go, ah, oh, geez, now three of the cards in my hand can't even be played. And th- there was nothing you could do about it. Whereas in the mind, you're sitting there, you're trying to feel out when you should go, but if you play at the wrong time, no one's really going to be mad at you because there was no way of knowing that you weren't supposed to go yet. It's interesting because the worst mistakes in the mind, because in the mind when you play a wrong card, you discard every card that's lower than it. So the worst mistakes would be like playing 37 before someone got a chance to play 36. But that's also the most understandable mistake because it's so close that even if you're trying to keep count with the internal clock, it's it's just, you if you as long as both of you guys were getting prepped to play, it was just slightly off. Whereas a really bad mistake, uh, like throwing 80 or 90 when people still have 30s and 40s, clears out a lot of cards, so you kind of don't have as many hard feelings about it, because you know, you still lose one life for doing it, but you lose all of these cards that were below it, and that can save time. And kind of, I've kind of thought that in the last round, if you have two lives, just whoever got 100 or 99 or whatever, just throw that out immediately and just, just, just take the hit. You know, make sure you win. Now, both of these, as I said, are cheap games. They're from Pandasaurus Games, which sounds like the most adorable thing ever. A little dinosaur in a panda costume. All right, it only eats bamboo. So wait, should we not move? No, then you look more like bamboo. <laughs> you have to keep moving so it doesn't eat you, right? It's sort of the opposite of the uh, T-Rex, right? <laughs> 
But uh, wait, Pandasaurus, that sounds like that sounds like some sort of like genetic anomaly, which makes me again think Cold War technology. Are we are we sure that none of the designers worked on MK Ultra and this isn't just something that they took out of the lab with them one day and decided to publish like 40 years later? Now, that doesn't sound like a thing that would happen. Now, the game that I actually went to the Pandasaurus booth to get was a wonderful game, a super hyped game called Nyctophobia. Now, I, I can sell this game to you with a quick elevator pitch. Here we go. Hey, do you want to play a board game where everyone but one player is wearing blindfolds? Yeah. Yeah, that, that right there is nyctophobia. Everyone but one player is blind. You're trying to stumble around through the woods searching for your car as a horrible murderous maniac is chasing you. It's, it's really interesting because of that element of having to navigate by touch. The way it works is the player who's the sort of narrator and the one controlling the maniac or witch or whatever it is you're avoiding takes your hand and puts you on the spot where your character is and you can feel all of the orthogonally adjacent spots and that allows you to find like hedges of trees or rocks that are on the ground or hopefully your car one of the things that you can do in this game is you are supposed to communicate with everyone else all right i think okay yeah i feel the southern edge of the board i'm moving east okay i feel the other edge of the board i'm i'm in the southeast corner of the board guys uh don't come near me. I, I didn't find anything along the southern edge. Anyone else finding anything? Yeah, and you just you just throw these sort of communications back and forth. But one thing one thing about the game is that there are times when players can't talk as well. One of them is when they're hiding, which allows you to avoid the uh, savage maniac. And uh, when you're hiding, you can't speak. So there was one time when I was playing with several of our friends, and I was trying to figure out how things were going. And I'm like, okay, so I'm on the southern edge of the board. Uh, now, Jake Jacob, you were over in the east side. Uh, did you remember if there was a south, southern passage over to where you are? Jacob? J oh, we are hiding. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, back. Um, so you, I think you were more toward the west side of the board, but I think you were a little toward the middle, right? Back? I, back? Oh, she's hiding too. Okay. Uh, Justin, you, you're all hiding, aren't you? I've been talking to myself this whole time. Yeah, there's just... Funny moments like that, which is a really cool uh, touch in the game, especially because it's really easy to accidentally blurt something out while you're hiding and there's a penalty for that. Now, the person playing the maniac, either the axe-wielding maniac or the witch, has kind of this dual role. They're the only player who isn't wearing these blackout sunglasses, so they have to guide people's hands to their position on the board and kind of give them the, no, 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 you're, you're, you're going diagonal here, let me help you out here. Yeah, that, that, is, that is exactly what you are feeling there. And they have to play the, the bad guy. They have two cards in front of them, and they choose which one of the two to play. And... Oftentimes there's a decision of, okay, do I tell them the truth or do I tell them a lie? Do I move toward this player? Do I move toward that player? But I'll admit, I really didn't get the same feel-good feeling that I normally get when I'm when I'm DMing or if I'm playing the narrator-style character in these in these games. It it felt more like I was moderating a game and the bad guy was just going on his own, and I was just kind of there to facilitate the playing of the game. But I didn't even get to have the amount of fun that I do when I'm narrating in a game of Werewolf, where I get to play around with the players a little bit more. It was really more of me just going, no, no, that's diagonal. You felt diagonally there as well. 
Try not to look over the edge of the glasses. I know that you can kind of see out the edge there. Yeah, you, you just knocked over one of the trees. Uh, yeah, what, no, that that's not even your piece there anymore. How did you how did you move your hand away from your piece? Right, and and another thing is that the the pieces are a little bit flimsy and easy to knock over and knock off the board. Uh, just feeling around, like I didn't feel like I was being too tremendously careless with how I was feeling around the board, but I think I knocked over the trees like three times, and yeah, I've got big clumsy hands but they're not that big and clumsy i can paint miniatures i i know how to you know i i, I know how to hold my hands steady and, and to apply appropriate pressure and i still would like bump the trees and they'd go flying or get knocked off the board and speaking of arranging the board there are really only like the book comes with what four scenarios scenario one two three and four right actually in the book it's printed as scenario one two three and three. Oh yeah the, the, there were several uh more than several typos in the book too it's uh there was actually one point where it was describing a rule and described it exactly the opposite of how the rule worked well that's a pretty severe problem actually as far as uh rules publishing is concerned but as i was saying the layouts that's that's why i was getting into the layouts are are given in the book and you could try to experiment with other layouts but because of the nature of the game and the nature of chasing characters in the game it's fairly possible to create layouts where the players don't really stand a chance of winning or where the odds are stacked so tremendously against them that it's not really a fair game anymore and i can definitely see if you're not very spatially inclined accidentally arranging a custom arrangement into one of those arrangements so that could be difficult as well it really kind of eats away at the replayability also the players have to sit there with the blackout glasses on for a little while while the board is assembled so it's a little uncomfortable as you just kind of sit around not talking and John, you were mentioning as we were playing how you're getting a little disoriented not being able to see. Yeah, which I guess is kind of the point, but the big problem is that the blackout glasses don't block my peripheral vision, and it kind of started making me a little nauseous and feel a little uncomfortable in a way that wasn't fun. I almost wish it was just a full blindfold, because I don't have any problem being blindfolded, but these blackout glasses still give you periphery, and it kind of makes sense because you might need to read the reference card that tells you how to play the game throughout the game if you're not super familiar with it you don't remember what all the actions are or how they work so having that peripheral vision does help but at the same time i think that's what makes it difficult this game is such a cool concept i wanted to love this game i bought it sight unseen at gen con i had heard about the concept and went no i don't need to test this i'm just gonna pick it up take it home to my group and play it and i kind of have buyer remorse over this i don't regret playing the game i really don't i i enjoy the experience that we had and anytime that any of my other gamer friends are coming over to my house i'm gonna break this game out and show it to them if for no other reasons then that way they don't have to buy it yeah it's really not that great a game honestly worst comes to worst if the concept sounds interesting to you find someone who owns a copy and play theirs if it still seems good to you then buy it but 
Otherwise, I mean, maybe they'll come out with a, another edition at some point to, to address the issues. It or... does feel like a game that could really stand some expansions and would do well with some expansions. Like maybe adding additional killers or additional rules or additional pieces of terrain would really improve the game and add a lot more interest to it. But right now, it just seems kind of bland. So moving on from that, there was one more game we wanted to discuss tonight. It's not precisely new, but it did have a new release right at Gen Con. Chip Theory Games has made what is possibly the most overproduced game I've ever played. Too Many Bones costs $125 and I feel that the company made a loss by selling me that game. The components are absolutely spectacular. It is a dice-based RPG light game of the more of a war game or more of a strategy game variety with some RPG elements. It specifically is reminiscent of like Diablo or World of Warcraft where you have like a skill tree that you build throughout the game and it's all done with dice. Each of the characters is represented by an 11 gram poker chip with a bunch of health tokens underneath them. Uh, You as the player have a custom neoprene playmat in front of you that all of your custom screen printed dice slot into. Now, all of that together is a really good value. Normally a game that would co- that costs this much that if it didn't have minis would really upset me, but these poker chips are really good. The art on them is great. They're sealed. All of the cards in the game are printed on PVC. I'm fairly certain that you could play the whole game underwater if you were weird for some reason. <laughs> it might be worth a shot just for the uh, thrill of it, but th- one thing I noticed is that, yeah, all these components are just such nice quality. The game is really a joy to play. It's very hard, I will say that, and we actually, I feel like we had one of the better setups and that we had a pretty good strategy between us the time we played and it's still, there was there was at least one fight where I was like, I, I have no idea how we could possibly win this. We are completely overwhelmed and you managed to pull through. I, I was of course defeated, but my character was a little squishier than yours. Yeah. The other thing is that all of the characters play differently. The base game comes with four different characters and each and every one of them has different skills, different dice, uh, full different tech trees, different abilities that they unlock. And these characters all play completely different. The expansion that came out this year, Undertow, is a standalone expansion. It contained two new characters, a full campaign of its own, a ton of new boss tokens, and a full group of extra cards to play the game in a completely different way. Undertow clocks in at about $85, which is a much more reasonable price point for entry into this game if you're not sure about it. Yeah, that that is a lot. $125 is kind of a a big investment for something sight unseen. Now, there's a lot of expansions to this game. There are four character expansions, one of which is a hydro mech, a a water-powered mech robot thing. There are two campaign expansions to it, one that lets you link all the scenarios together into a massive campaign, and one that adds more story elements into the base game. And those 
I believe, cost $40, $50 each. If, if you were to buy everything, it would cost well over $400. And you'd get, a, like, a 30-pound box just full of neoprene and dice and all that, and only a complete madman would do that. And I know this because I am missing $400 from my wallet and bank account because I bought all of this stuff because it's so cool. I, I actually was thinking, like, wait a minute. When I was opening the box, it had, like, more than four characters in it and more than six because he had undertow. Wait, did you, you you bought all that? Is this like is this like a humble brag about how much money you have? No, this is me saying that you guys need to have an intervention. This is a cry for help. No, no, I well, I'm sorry because it's like it's like if you had a friend who partied and and they did a lot of cocaine, and it was a problem, but they brought their cocaine and shared it. So you know, as, as long as you keep letting us play the games, we're going to encourage this sort of self-destructive behavior. I'm afraid I cannot recommend too many bones enough. It is so fun. It is tactically different it is a challenging game it is fun to play each time you play through it it is different and all of the pieces and parts in it do feel high quality you do not feel at any point in time that you're just going to accidentally break the game even the underside of the box lid has beautiful art in it which you never see and one thing i liked was how for how busy it is i did not feel like setup and teardown were like hugely daunting the way gloomhaven like with gloomhaven it's a little intimidating to have to set up and tear down like Gloomhaven, Kingdom Death Monster, any of the really big Arkham Horror, any of the really big box games, a lot of times just set up and tear down can be this huge intimidating process. And I really felt like it was easy to break out, easy to put away. The hardest part about the game is teaching people how to play. Because each character is different, you don't necessarily know how they should be playing their character. You just kind of teach them the basics of the game and go, okay, read this sheet right here it'll tell you what to do with your character how your character is different and unique from what i'm saying and we'll just kind of wing it i guess if i played more i might have a stronger opinion on things but right now having played the one time i can say that throughout the whole game i was kind of regretting every choice i made on my skill tree even though i was pleased with the outcome of every choice because i was a little caught up on what i could have done and what would have been useful right now so once again too many bones as we play the game a little bit more, if I feel that this really needs a, a longer discussion about it, we might revisit this topic. But I, once again, I, I recommend this game so hard. If you have the money, if you have multiple people who can each donate a little bit of money, it is worth every dollar. It's really a great game for a gaming group. And I, I really feel I, we need to do an episode about maintaining a gaming library in your group because that's kind of what we do. We, we all sort of coordinate what games we're getting, borrowing them once in a while and stuff like that, loaning them through each other. And I think that helps us get a richer gaming experience in general. So maybe that's a topic we should discuss some other time. But actually, I think we've already got our topic for the next episode figured out, right? Yes. Next episode, we're talking about DMing 102, a sequel to our DMing 101 episode from last season. Yeah, we're going to try not to retouch on any of the topics that we really hit hard in that first one, but we'd like to expand on that and tell you some more tips and tricks and ways to get the most out of your DMing experience. So, once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. 
We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. T.S. Eliot Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.